Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Bui and bienvenidos, bitches, to Fruit Loops, episode 123. One, two, three. One, two, three is for me. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? I said no. And oh, it's a complete sentence. My therapist told me so. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is rare. Racist, and that's not funny, but allegedly. <laughs> we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602 935 6294, and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com. Pod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each 
each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways you can support the show. So yeah. who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Jarvis Theodore Roosevelt Coteau, mm. a serial killer who was active from 1935 to 1941, but possibly as early as 1929 in Washington, D.C. and New York, New York. Ooh, New York! What a time! <laughs> but before... <laughs> <Okay>. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> That's where it's at. Now, before we get there, how you doing? I'm all right. I was fighting off a headache all day today and uh, mm, had I'm to sorry. still had to work, so that sucked. But Ooh. other than that, <laughs> yeah, doing been... all right. Looking forward to CrimeCon. Pretty yeah. excited. Yeah, yeah. Just another week or so. Yeah, I know it's right around the corner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was just, you know, these TikTokers. They're like kids in their twenties. 20 or like mid 20s and they like are making gazillions of dollars making videos yeah yeah i just i want that life and then <laughs> <laughs> and part of me's like i'm gonna go to crime con i'm gonna lay it all on the line so i could be a tiktoker <laughs> someday uh and i was <laughs> i was talking to my kids about like money and stuff and uh i was saying something and they like they were asking me for something and i was like well we we don't need that and we don't have the money for it. And um, then I said something like, dreams don't come true. And they were so <laughs> shocked. Be and I threw that in there because I know that they're not listening to me most of the time. Right. But so every, now, every now and then I'll throw in a little gem like that. And they really are listening they to me. They are listening. <laughs> they oh, wow. let it go. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one time I was at, uh, I was somewhere and the kids wanted me to buy something for them. This uh -huh. was, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, I said, uh, I don't have the money for that. And they said, Mom, why don't you just go to the ATM? <laughs> <laughs> uh, isn't that funny? My kids have said that too. Like, Oh, it's so cute. They're little minds. And you know what? I, I want to go to the ATM so bad and There's push all the there, buttons though. and get all the money out of it. I just, yeah. it just won't happen. Yeah. There's just nothing in there for me. It's so cute. Oh man. Oh man. Oh boy. Yes. Here we are. Yes. So very excited for CrimeCon. Yeah. Um, so before we get to CrimeCon, um, I just wanted to ask you if, you've seen this Simone Biles gravity defying jump no oh my god there's a special name for this vault trick that she does she basically flips in the air like three or four times the trick is so dangerous no woman has even dared attempt it oh my god <laughs> and Simone Biles has done it numerous times now oh, and, and when asked how do you do that, Simone Biles? She just says, just because I can. <laughs> just because I can. Just, so I can do it. I so do. I do it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just want to take that energy with me all the way to the end of like my life, my days. Right. Just because I can. I mean, if you think about it, that's what a mediocre white guy would. If you yeah. didn't say it out loud, he would think it like, right. Yeah. Just because I can. I can and the, do it. Yeah. The, yeah. And the, and the internet was being so fucked up to about the Simone Biles thing. Cause they were, the internet was saying, Oh, well, she's, you know, ruined the fun of the sport for everybody else. Uh, why? Yeah, because because she, her her um, feats are so unattainable 
that's so spectacular. Nobody, so spectacular. So, and nobody else her do them. <laughs> right. And Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps, <laughs> I don't know, the guy who swims, yeah. like, uh, it goes, swims in a straight line for meters at a time. <laughs> anyway, he like wins all these awards and nobody's like, oh no. The sport is really is the, ruined. It's gonna yeah. be compromised because he's just so amazing. Just no. it's just ruined now. It's ruined. And people were like, hmm, I wonder why Simone Biles is getting all this heat. And I was like, Hello? Is anybody <laughs> are you blind? It starts with the R and ends with the Acism. Anyway, yeah. let's get into some listeners. Also, letters. she's female. Hello. Hello. <laughs> yes. Angel. Thank you. <laughs> what is in that bag, Beth? Well, we got an email from Lindsay from Canada. Hello, Lindsay from Canada. Yeah, and they said, I'm from Canada and would love to hear if there are any people of color, marginalized, or unrepresented serial killers here. Are there? Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've covered a few. Um, uh, I just did a quick search and found uh, Shinkichi Sakurada. The episode was called The East Cordova Street Murder Factory. And then Swift Runner and Lulanda Flett. Right. I don't remember if we did any other Canadians. But if you fruities think of anybody else that we should be um, covering, let us know. Yes. Uh, we'd love to do some more Canadians. Um, yes. And then Lindsay suggested an episode on the serial killer Robert Picton um, because he killed indigenous Canadian women. Mm. And but the only thing is that he's white. Um, that, yeah. But I think it would be cool to make an exception, especially yeah. because this happens a lot to uh, indigenous women and black women. Right. And yeah. uh, it, it, the numbers are high. And we we uh, I, I think um, we got we got to show love and respect to the victims. And right. I just think it would be a neat um, twist on the show yeah. or a little uh, extra credit. I can't think of the yeah. word, but just a little something. Yeah, maybe yeah. a patron episode, patron only mm -hmm. episode or something like that, possibly. But uh, um, I did wanted to tell Lindsay that um, Robert Picton was covered by the podcast Canadian True Crime. Uh -huh. and, and she did an excellent four part deep dive on that fucko. So check it out. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. You're welcome. Awesome. I need to subscribe to that myself. Anyway, yes. go ahead. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to say thank you to Kitty Cat 977 and Ray Rose for your five-star reviews. Yeah, I read those. They were so nice. So Not here really nice. Yeah. Here are your hip hop air horns, Lindsay and Kitty Cat and Ray Rose. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we got some new patrons. Um, first of all, I before I give you you all your tunes, I just want to say to all the people who have been supporting our show so far, we uh I don't know if you've heard. Did I tell you this? We are going to CrimeCon. <laughs> Would you believe it, girls? Uh, and the only reason we are able to do this is because we have uh, supporters, uh, yeah, patrons, you and, and you guys yep. listening. So we cannot thank you enough. And to the OG patrons. So those are for the OG patrons. Our new ones are uh, Angelus C. And Sarah C. Hyphen F. Um, you know who you are. <laughs> and here are your tunes. Uh, 
wanna sing for Angelis, for Angelis. Uh, thank you, Angelis. Uh, and then uh, Sarah C, this is for you. Five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred Sarahs. How do you measure a year in the pod? How about love? You got to, you got to, Sarah, love. Uh, I can't remember the rest of the words, but Sarah, that's for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. uh, Thank you all so much. So we're going to take a little break and then we're going to get in the story when we come back. So we are back. Beth, are you okay over there? <laughs> She's cracking me up, y'all. It's my favorite thing to do in life. Um, I'm trying to think, what else do I like? Podcasting, make Beth laugh, um, <laughs> sex with my husband, and spending time with my kids. Uh, in that order. <laughs> so uh, we're back. So Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Jarvis Kato a serial killer active in Washington, D.C., just prior to the United States' entry into World War II. Mm, 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 mm. Well, let's get into it uh, with some stats. (laughs) All right, Jarvis Theodore Roosevelt Coteau, a.k.a. the DuPont Circle Killer. He had eight victims and is suspected of some several unsolved murders. And of those, there are five. So uh, let's uh, speak the victims' names. Rest in power, Queens. And by the way, the, his victims were black and white women. Right. Florence Darcy died in 1935. Josephine Robinson, December of 1939. Lucy Kidwell, September 1940. Maddie Stewart, November 1940. Ada Puller, January 2nd, 1941. Rose Abramovitz, March 1941. Jesse Streif, June 15th, 1941. Evelyn Anderson, August 4th, 1941. And again, he's suspected of unsolved the unsolved murders of Virginia McPherson, who died in September 1929. Mary Baker died in April 1930. Mary E. Sheeds, May 1934. Corinna Loring, November 9th, 1935. And Beulah Limerick, December 1935. Uh, So now we're going to dive into the setting. Set the stage. What do you got, Beth? Washington, D.C. It's located on the Potomac River. It's not a state nor a part of any state, but a federal district. The city is named for George Washington, and the district is named after Columbia, which is a female personification of the United States. Interesting. I was just thinking of a little tune called No One Else Was in the Room Where It Happened. (laughs) Now, prior to the arrival of the Europeans, the area we think of today as Washington, D.C., which is uh, was rich in natural resources, which supported the local native people living there. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Indigenous people lived there and were mining their own beeswax. Now, the village of Nakochank was situated within the modern borders of the District of Columbia along the intersection of two major rivers, the Potomac and the Anacostia. It is believed to have been a major trading center. The Nakochank were forcibly removed and were last recorded in the late 1600s as taking refuge on Theodore Roosevelt Island, which it wasn't called that at the time. It wasn't? 
What was it called? No. Oh, I right. right. Yeah. Theodore Roosevelt. No. Oh, Jesus. I was like, wait a minute. It wasn't. Wait, what? No, that's what that's white fuckery that came yeah. in and did that. Okay. So they they <laughs> Okay. Yes. They took refuge on an island located in the Potomac River. Yeah. Over time, the small population that was left behind after battle and disease was absorbed by Maryland's Piscataway tribe. I always thought that was really interesting that white people throughout the world, people with more melanin, indigenous, they did this to indigenous people, Indians in India, um, you know, uh, Africans, uh, Africans, yeah. black people that, that are that uh, people whose skin is not white is somehow dirtier yeah <laughs> but we're not the ones spreading disease <laughs> smallpox and shutch everywhere come on now look at the mirror uh so in 1800 black people comprised about 25 percent of the population of dc the majority of them enslaved but by 1830 most were free people yet slavery remained uh yeah those those guys who <laughs> wrote uh the declaration of independence uh and the constitution own human yeah, beings that's crazy uh yeah and so in 1848 the free black community came up with a plan hire a ship and crew and take enslaved black people in the middle of the night to the free state of New Jersey. On Saturday, April 15th, 1848, the escapees, including a man, former First Lady Dolly Madison, enslaved, and purportedly another in President James K. Polk's White House, quietly left the homes of their enslavers, made their way to the docks, and boarded the ship the Pearl. On Sundays, enslaved people were allowed to rest, so it was hoped that their enslavers would not notice they were missing until Monday. Along with the 77 escapees, there were only three others on board, the captain, Daniel Drayton, and the co-captain, Edward Sayers, who I believe were both white, plus a cook. They set sail in the early hours of April 16th down the Potomac River to get around southern Maryland. Then they were supposed to head north up the Chesapeake Bay to the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal and Freedom. Mm. But the wind was so still, it took all of Sunday to sail down the Potomac. Then a storm forced them to anchor the ship near Point Lookout in Maryland. When the white residents of Washington realized the escapees were missing, by the way, if <laughs> there are some white people who are like, you know, slavery wasn't that bad. Oh, <laughs> if God. it wasn't that bad, why would people try to escape? Yeah, why don't you be? Why don't you be a slave? <laughs> exactly. Then? Uh, they. You hear, did you hear about that white man who was like, "We got to talk about all the things about slavery: the good, the bad, and the ugly." Uh, and then uh, the yeah. lady was like, "Oh, sir, what do you mean the good about slavery?" Yeah. Anyway, uh, so they they got. <laughs> I'm sorry, I way off topic. Wendy, shut up! They got a steamship to give chase and caught up with the Pearl where it was anchored. The ship was towed back to Washington, and as the escapees were carted off to jail, an angry crowd harassed them. Drayton and Sayers were abused so badly by the crowd that authorities had to hide them for fear they would be killed. A pro-slavery riot, a pro-slavery riot raged for three days. I wonder if it looked like the insurrection on January 6th. Probably. Mm. They're probably just waving flags and yeah. saying stupid ass shit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> Nearly all of the escapees were sold south. Man. Um, and uh, they ripped away from their homes. Their yes, families. their families. Uh, yeah, and that their was families a way to punish enslaved people. Yep. Um, split them up. Mm -hmm. Man, did you hear this? Did you hear this white lady Beth over here? Does it again? <laughs> 
Look at her <laughs> reciting history of enslaved people to me. Wow. <laughs> How does she do it? Uh, so though the escape attempt was unsuccessful, the story got national attention in abolitionist newspapers. And two years later, the slave trade, but not slavery, was banned in D.C. Slavery finally ended in Washington on April 16th, 1862, 14 years to the day after the Pearl tried to sail away. During the Civil War and Reconstruction, more than 25,000 Black people moved to Washington, D.C. Through the passage of Congress's Reconstruction Act of 1867, the city's Black men gained the right to vote three years before the passage of the 15th Amendment that gave all men the right to vote. Sometimes little f- historical facts will make you like smile. You know, yeah. like, it wasn't all terrible. Uh, <laughs> and that little fact makes me smile. Um, so by 1900, Washington had the largest percentage of Black folks of any city in the nation. Um, welcome to Culture Corner. Washington, D.C. is often referred to as as uh, Chocolate City uh, because there are so many Black people. Now, many came from opportunities for federal jobs. Others were attracted to the educational institutions. Howard, uh, what do they say about Howard? Oh, I wish I could go there. Kamala Harris went to Howard. All kinds of amazing Black people went there. Howard was founded in 1867. It was a magnet for Black professors professors and students. Mm. Mm-hmm. Washington had relatively few Jim Crow laws, but segregation and racism were endemic. Woodrow Wilson, who was the president between 1913 and 1921, was a segregationist who wrote a history textbook praising the Confederacy and, in particular, the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, we're doing that. Okay. (laughs) We're we're just flat out telling lies. Okay. (laughs) As president, Woodrow Wilson rolled back hard-fought progress for Black Americans. Yeah. um, What a dick. What a dick. I was going to say, do you talk about that movie uh, about the Ku Klux Klan coming back to save... America. Oh, um, yeah, Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, yes, was screened at the at the White House. Oh, wow. Um, and I believe in this time period, 1913, 1921, yeah. there was a march of the Ku Klux Klan in front of the White oh, House. Oh my god. And the word on the street is Donald Trump's dad was in that march. Oh, I yeah, I would I would not don't doubt fact that. check me, but I wouldn't doubt it. It might not be true. But if it was true, I would not be surprised. (laughs) There you go. So uh, black folks uh, reacted strongly to President Wilson's institution of segregation in all of the federal government agencies. Clashes between African-Americans and European-Americans reached a fever pitch during the July 1919 race riot when women and men fought back against violent white people. And this this year, 1919-ish, throughout the United States was a pretty um, violent year with black yeah. people just asserting their rights and white right. people losing it because yeah, losing their shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. After World War One, the Commission of Fine Arts was established to advise city planners on the appropriate design and placement of memorials in federal buildings. Art galleries, museums, concert halls, and the Lincoln Memorial were built. At the same time, however, neglected neighborhoods multiplied and only became worse during the Great Depression. The New Deal programs of President Franklin D. Roosevelt provided employment to thousands of workers in Washington, not only in existing government offices, but also in construction of uh, new federal buildings, including the Supreme Court and the Federal Triangle buildings. But the New Deal excluded domestic and agricultural workers. 
So oh wow, that's a lot okay. of black people in those in those uh, fields. Yeah, yeah. And on the cusp of America's entry into World War II, hundreds of thousands of newcomers were drawn to the city for work. Between 1939 and 1945, Washington's population surged to about 950,000 people. Wow! Yeah. Temporary office buildings were erected along the mall and around the Washington Monument for tens of thousands of new staff, and the expansion of government led to a citywide housing shortage. I raise funds in D.C. for the Washington Monument. <laughs> she tells my story. <laughs> oh, my God. Every time many of the new staffers were women, often referred to as government girls, sometimes called white collar Rosie the Riveters. This clerical core of over 100,000 women, mostly young, single and alone in a big city for the first time, migrated from across the country to become federal stenographers typists, codebreakers, analysts, and spies to join America's war effort. In a 1941 Newsweek article, the magazine called D.C. the murder capital in a scathing article about crime in the capital city. Mm. Quote, in proportion to the population, there are 250 percent more murders in Washington than in New York City, 40 percent more even than in Chicago, unquote. That's it's just inflammatory language, right? If it bleeds, if it le if it bleeds, it leads, right? Right, and right. Newsweek trying to uh, sell uh, papers. Um, I wonder about the crime and the murder murder capital of the of the United States. Just sounds so like intense and bloody and yeah uh, yeah and anyway it could have been like that i don't know uh anyway one of the problems cited was that the washington police department is not one force but five the metropolitan police the capitol police the white house police the park police and the federal building guards and they do not cooperate yes they are messy messy hoes <laughs> messy ass hoes <laughs> messy the messiest of hoes so messy so much messy hoedness Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. 
and I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. Now, uh, let us get into the early life of Jarvis Cateau. Hit it, Beth. Jarvis Theodore Roosevelt Cateau was born on October 6, 1905 in Kershaw, South Carolina. He was the oldest of eight siblings, and it's been reported that his parents had been born into slavery. Um, The numbers, to me, don't really add up because if he was born in 1905, his parents would have to be almost 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was the oldest of eight siblings, so they would have had eight kids or seven kids after that. So it doesn't really add up, but that doesn't mean it's not true. I just don't know. Yeah. um, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Who who knows? Um, Yeah. But uh, what else about him? He attended school until the fifth grade and then became an undertaker's assistant. (gasps) Dream job alert. (laughs) His parents died in 1919, and then he went to live with an uncle. In 1925, he suffered a head injury when he was thrown from a vehicle, and he was not expected to live. But he did. According to his brother, after the head injury, his behavior changed. Beginning in the hospital while he was recovering, he would have violent spells when he would choke the nurses and the doctors. I bet that was fun. (laughs) <laughs> you know what though uh, th- 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 this doesn't change the story either way but i i am assuming it was in a segregated hospital or a segregated wing of the hospital oh yeah probably yeah jarvis married a girl in north carolina but they soon separated because of what his family called his quote-unquote spells mm. in 1929 his brother brought him to washington dc to live with him There, Jarvis worked for police as an informant on prohibition violation cases, Mm. a cafeteria worker, a garage man, a handyman, and a houseman. That's a lot of jobs. What do they say? Jack of all trades, master of none. (laughs) That's me, Jarvis Katoa, at your service. Uh, But one thing I did want to say about the informant part and um, law enforcement uh, would use black people to infiltrate Places where they couldn't go, yeah. Places where they couldn't go to take down, um, you know, black uh, yeah. people doing things that uh, law enforcement did not uh, agree agree with. Um, so uh, Jarvis would sometimes disappear for a week at a time. Jarvis's brother brought his wife to D.C. in hopes that they could reconcile, but it didn't work out. Because Jarvis had the habit of disappearing, and he would also sometimes sleep in his car and refuse to come into the house. And I imagine his wife just got fucking sick of it. So she went back to North Carolina. In 1932, Jarvis obtained a taxi license, listing himself as a former police employee. Mm, that's that's a stretch. Ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like saying uh, I uh, use the self-checkout at um, the grocery store right. and I'm so, actually the department district manager for right. all of the grocery stores oh, in my part of the country. <laughs> I have so much experience. <laughs> in 1937, he bought a brand new black Pontiac sedan between 1931 and 1941. He accrued 17 traffic violations and his license was suspended, but he was still allowed to drive pending an appeal. 
Wow. Uh, I can't even imagine getting that many violations. (laughs) That is a lot. Yes, it is. In May of 1935, he was sentenced to 135 days in jail for two counts of indecent exposure. In December, but this was the 30s, so is it like showing your ankles indecent exposure? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't get any details on on (laughs) what exactly happened. He could have been uh, out side and peeing in a bush or something who knows mm, 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 mm. all right uh, oh, now, but knowing knowing this guy you know it pro- uh, probably, probably went was well, yeah, yeah it was probably yeah. something bad yeah yeah uh safe to say i think uh <laughs> in december of the same year he was sentenced to 180 days on the same charge and was released in may of 1936 People described Cato as a smooth talker, someone who easily started and maintained conversations. A marginally odd but otherwise harmless neighbor, a seemingly hardworking man who had no problems attracting women. He was a slim but powerfully built, light-skinned black man, five feet nine inches tall, about 165 pounds, with extremely large, strong hands. Yeah, the sources that I referred to for this uh, individual all referred to his large hands. Yeah. Um, uh, The better to choke you with. The better to choke you with, my dear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, that's interesting. And being light skinned, we've talked about this before um, because some of his victims were white. Right. And um, the closer you are to resembling the colonizer or the default in society, the more easily you are, uh, uh, more easily it, it is for you to move about society. The so, more accepted you r- are. Right, more accepted. So he was able, like, we'll get to the timeline and everything, but he found himself in situations where white people, like, trusted him yeah. um, and were not afraid. Um, and I... I part of me believes that his light skin might have afforded him that privilege to move about in an easier way. But what do I know? Don't fact check me. (laughs) Now we're getting into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. Beginning in 1929, women were being murdered in Washington, D.C. at an alarming rate. The first was 22-year-old Virginia McPherson, a nurse, and I believe she was white. In fact, uh, we'll go through several murders in the next few minutes, and I think the victims were all white. On September 14th, 1929, after Virginia failed to respond to his telephone calls, her estranged husband visited her second floor apartment in northwest Washington. He found Virginia on the floor of the bedroom, clad only in a silk pajama top. A pajama cord was tightly wrapped five times around her throat and secured in place with a knot. At first, her murder was declared a suicide, but witnesses saw a suspect escaping out of the rear window of the apartment onto a low roof. On April 11, 1930, 28-year-old Mary Baker, a clerk with the Navy Department, was murdered. A witness saw Baker near the Washington Monument in a car with a man at the wheel who apparently struck her several times with his fist before driving the two of them away. I saw Baker near the Washington Monument in a car with a man at the wheel who apparently struck her several times and with his fist before driving the two of them away. The witness, 
I need to stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> the witness, <laughs> the witness scribbled down the license plate number and reported it to the police that same evening. The license belonged to Mary's car, which was found on a remote road on a fringe of Arlington National Cemetery the following morning. Police found Mary's body nearby, face up in the shallow water of a culvert. Her underwear had been torn away and she'd been scratched, strangled, beaten severely enough to dislodge several teeth, Ooh. and then shot three times with a 25 caliber handgun in the throat, back, and left side. No! Man. Not shot also? Yeah, man. Wow! That is a lot! Yeah. Wow. Oh, that is, uh... Woo, Vicious. That's very much so. Uh, and, uh, pardon me, what is a culvert? I think it's like a ditch. Oh, Let me okay. check real quick. Okay. Oh, it's a tunnel carrying a stream or open drain under a road or railroad. So those... Uh, oh, law and order style. Yeah, yeah one of those uh, <laughs> structures where underneath a bridge or something where water flows through. Yeah, and drug deals take yes, place. Yes, yes. And bodies are found <laughs> all the time on SVU. Well, the, okay. in this case, a body was found in a culvert. There you go. There there was Mary. Uh, now, on May 24th, 1934, 65-year-old retired school teacher Mary E. Sheeds was found in her Northwest Washington apartment. She had been punched in the eye, raped, and strangled. Her killer had apparently entered her apartment from the window fire escape. From under her fingernails, police scraped skin samples allegedly belonging to a light-skinned African-American. No further details were uncovered. On November 9th, 1935, 26-year-old Corinna Loring was found in a lover's lane a few blocks away from her home in Mount Rainier, just outside Washington, D.C., in Maryland. Loring mm. was a Sunday school teacher scheduled to be married in two days. That's <gasps> so sad. That is so sad. There, but also the scandal of it all. Yeah. Lover's Lane, engaged to be married in two days. Sunday, Sunday school. school teacher. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Page six. Where are you? <laughs> there were two bone deep lacerations over her right eye and an inexplicable burn, almost like a brand on her forehead. Oh, my goodness gracious. So she had been strangled with a five foot length of twine tightly wrapped around and embedded into her throat. Uh, Another whiskey... vicious one. Why are you so Why are you so mad, Jarvis? Uh, so, uh, so a whiskey bottle with a pocket-sized edition of the Bible stuffed through its neck was found nearby. Police suspected several former suitors and even her fiance's ex-girlfriend. Wow. Uh, I don't know if a woman would be that vicious, though. Uh, um, could be. True crime. Oh, Gia, true crime. Can you tell us? <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Uh, okay. So, Corinna was buried in her wedding gown. Wow. On December 31st, 1935, 19-year-old Beulah Limerick was found dead in her bed in her apartment in southeast Washington. At first, her death was ruled to be by natural causes due to internal hemorrhage, and her body was released to a funeral home. But as the undertaker began preparing the corpse, he uncovered a small 25 caliber gunshot wound in the nape of her neck, cleverly stuffed with her hair and combed over by the killer, who also washed away the blood and applied root to the dead girl's face. Wait a diddly doggone minute. So this guy is very vicious. Yes. But also so calculated yeah. and intelligent that it makes it quite terrifying. Yes. Um, 
Well, Beulah was the secretary of a former Prohibition era drinking club, the Sky High Whoopee Club. <laughs> and since the age of 15, to make whoopee, I think that means sex. Yes. And since the age of 15, had a string of lovers and admirers she described in a diary that was found in her apartment. Scandalous. <laughs> Scandal. Olivia Pope. Uh, the national press reported on all of these unsolved murders and hinted that they were connected but they went wild for Beulah's story. Of course. Of course, yeah. Yeah. After the death of Beulah Limerick, the murders appeared to cease, but only because the newspapers stopped reporting them. At least six more women were murdered in Washington, D.C. Most were raped, strangled, and battered, but they were all black women, and the press was not interested. And you'll also notice that we have fewer details on these murders because we just couldn't find them. What do we say? Top of every episode, y'all, the news is racist. Yep. And in 1930-something whatever, they were even Doubly. more so. Yes. So Cato later said that his MO was to visit Black landladies on the pretext either of renting rooms or doing handyman work. He would insist that they show him all the rooms to ensure that nobody else was home. And then he would strangle them. On April 12, 1935, a 65-year-old widow named Florence Darcy was strangled to death. Soon afterwards, a man by the name of James Matthew Smith was arrested when two witnesses identified him as the killer. Smith was adamant that he was innocent, but he was found guilty. Uh At one point, because of the stress, he had to be transferred to a psychiatric institution where he stayed for two years. Do we know if James Matthew Smith was a black gentleman? I'm assuming he was. I think so, yeah. The witnesses identified him. But uh, another thing we talk about in true crime is uh, witness identification being not very not accurate (laughs) or good. And when it comes to cross racial lines, people are it's even even worse. worse, The numbers. It's like uh, it's like your brain doesn't have enough space for people of different races uh in your in in your in your brain and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are racist it's just it it, it can it be just difficult is what to it decipher is. Yeah. features yeah that you are um not familiar with right. um so uh josephine robinson 34 was murdered on december 1st 1939 we unfortunately don't know anything about jo- josephine or her murder on September 28, 1940, landlady Lucy Kidwell, 62, was strangled to death in her home. Cato later said that he lured her into the basement by telling her he was a mechanic and wanted to store his tools there. He then strangled her, raped her, and then carried her body upstairs. Before leaving, he stole $42. On November 28, 1940, landlady Maddie Stewart, 48, was also strangled to death in her home. On January 22, 1941, Ada Puller, 22, was found strangled to death in her basement apartment. Coteau had met Ada on the street, and the two went together to her basement apartment. When she demanded money for sex, he became infuriated and choked oh. her. He said, quote, she came to before I could attack her, so I choked her good, Quote. Wow. Uh, on June 30th, 1941, Mabel Everett, 16, was found battered to death in an apartment basement building locker. These murders attracted little attention as the victims were all black and female and most were older. The press did not cover these deaths when they occurred and police officers conducted minimal investigations to locate the culprit. 
1941, a white woman was raped and strangled in her own apartment, and the press suddenly came alive again. Wow. <laughs> they, white they woke people? Up. <laughs> no, don't kill the white people. No, well, it's the media's favorite. It's yeah. the whole impetus for this entire show. <laughs> this murder began a series of murders that was eventually dubbed the DuPont Circle Murders. Mm, 25-year-old Rose Abramowitz, a white woman, had been married to her husband, Barney, for exactly one month on March 8th, 1941. They lived in a small, upscale apartment building on north on the northern edge of DuPont Circle. She was a secretary at an optometrist's office, and Barney was an attorney who worked for the Social Security Agency. She and her husband were having company at their small efficiency apartment that Saturday night to celebrate their anniversary. The apartment was a disappointment to the newlyweds, and maintenance was a problem. The floors bothered Rose the most. She felt embarrassed about the streaky wax job and had no rugs to cover it up. Embarrassed about just floors. A floor? Yeah. Strange. Uh, well, they so the- in an efficiency apartment. And remember um, when we were talking about the history, how there was like a shortage of housing and stuff like that? Yeah. So an efficiency apartment is actually even smaller than a studio. So shut up. Yeah, it's one room. And they had a day bed that they slept in and uh, it was just really, really small. So I I think, you know, she's like, at least the floors could be nice. God damn it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I I did not know that. And thank you, Beth, for uh, letting us know. An efficiency apartment, everyone. Okay. Well, thank you, Beth. You're welcome. Now. Now that makes a lot more sense why she gave so many fucks about it. Now that morning, Rose was determined to find that the apartment janitor to wax the floors, but he was nowhere to be seen. However, she did notice Cato walking down the street and she demanded if he knew where the janitor was. Uh, demanded, she did. Okay. Uh, when Cato politely replied he had no idea who or where the janitor was, she offered him the job to wax the floor. On an impulse, he accepted the job and followed her up the stairs. She led him into the apartment, but when her back was turned, he attacked her and strangled her into unconsciousness, then carried her to the daybed and raped her. When she began returning to consciousness, he strangled her to death, smoothed out her housecoat, and left her slippers neatly arranged at her feet. He took $20 from her pocketbook before leaving, a fact police had withheld from the press, and then went to work. A few blocks away from the scene of the crime, he clocked in at 11 a.m. By the way, this is so not unrelated, unrelated, but a pocketbook in the Black community is your vagina. So... (laughs) So I did not know I, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so I won't, at least won't be saying pocketbook anymore. That's what my grandma <laughs> called it. And I've heard them say it on the Real Housewives of Atlanta and Potomac. So <laughs> that's but, so funny. You know, don't fact check me. So <laughs> leave my pocketbook alone. Yeah. <laughs> he got into your pocketbook? Girl, who did that? <laughs> Who said that? You got twenty dollars in there. <laughs> in your pocketbook, girl. girl. <laughs> yes, indeed, oh. my pocketbook is priceless. If you must know. <laughs> when Rose's husband came home at about one thirty-eight p.m., he found Rose lying on her side, one hand resting on her chest, and the other beside her. She was clad only in her housecoat, and her slippers were neatly placed at the foot of the bed. When he went to wake her. 
her body was cold. The medical examiner later determined that she had been raped and manually strangled. The time of the crime was placed at about 9.30 to 10 a.m. A tenant in the apartment below said that he heard a scuffle, screams, and footsteps from the kitchen to the living room during that time period. 22-year-old Jesse Elizabeth Betty Strife. Betty was her nickname. Oh, Beth. Yes. Elizabeth. Yes. Betty. Betty. Yes. Uh, There you go. Okay. (laughs) So call me Betty now. (laughs) Got it. Betty was a white woman and a graduate of Drake University and had moved to Washington in 1940, leaving her home in Des Moines, Iowa. She lived with a co-worker in a small apartment near DuPont Circle, about four blocks away from where Rose Abramowitz had been murdered. Betty was a government girl and she worked as a war department clerk. She had top secret clearance and had been recently promoted to chief clerk. She was engaged and her wedding day was right around the corner. Another wedding. Yeah. Uh, well, wait a minute. What time of year is it? Summertime. Oh, yeah. You're right? right. Everybody's getting married. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And statistically, rapes also go up. Oh, in, that's in right. In the, the summer. summer. Yeah. On Sunday, June 15th, 1941, Betty was expecting her fiance for dinner, but she needed butter. So she decided to run down to the store real quick to pick up some. It was raining when she left her building. So she borrowed an umbrella from her roommate. But when a man wearing a chauffeur cap drove by in a black sedan, she thought it was a taxi. So she flagged him down for a ride. It was Coteau. Coteau was on the way to see his girlfriend. But when he saw Betty raise her hand for a ride, he stopped. When he opened the door, Betty drew back. I I thought you were driving a cab, she said. That's all right, lady, he replied. I'll take you where you're going. But he didn't. Mm -hmm. Instead, Coteau took her to a garage where she was attacked and murdered. Mm -hmm. Coteau later said that Betty, quote, put up a good fight, unquote, beating him in the face with her fists. He took a belt from her outfit and pulled it tighter and tighter around Betty's throat. He then stripped off her clothing and raped her. Uh, Shout out to Betty for fighting like hell. Rest in power, queen. Uh, He at first planned to leave Betty's body at the scene, but decided to put her back in the car and take her to a different garage because he had been to the first garage before having washed an automobile for the person who rented it. He then dumped Betty's body at a second garage located eight blocks away from her apartment and stuffed her clothes into a trash bin. Coteau kept the pretty umbrella that she carried. It had polka dots and quarter moons. It sounds really pretty. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it does. And he gave it as a gift to his girlfriend. Betty's nude body was found in the garage near DuPont Circle. News of her murder made local and national headlines. Girls murder is seventh for D.C. in eight years. The newspaper headlines read, many of the murders had occurred on streets in northwest Washington radiating from DuPont Circle, so they were now dubbed the DuPont Circle murders. Betty Strife, if you recall, was a secretary at the War Department, and because of her status, the FBI got involved in the investigation. Also, two senators from Betty's home state immediately demanded a congressional investigation. Wow. They also called for the intervention of the Department of Justice to halt what they described as, quote, Washington, D.C.'s outrageous condition, unquote. Wow. Look at all the stops they pull out in the name of right white supremacy and protecting whiteness and white life. Um. I don't want anybody to take that the wrong way. It's just, this is a lot. Yeah, I think it was uh, partly because she was white and partly because she was in the war department. Oh, right. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, At several points during the hearings, Representative Hebert 
justified the use of police brutality against black Washingtonians based on their alleged rates of crime by arguing, this is hard to read, so forgive me, force begets force. Uh, (laughs) Baguettes, bread. Uh, So force, (laughs) force begets force. He contended Listen to this, that black citizens were lawless and suggested that Washington police officers needed to locate, quote, a way to handle these fellows. Now, you shut your white <laughs> mouth, Representative <laughs> Hubbard. Yeah, that's have you heard that. That's <laughs> have you heard that clip going around the Internet? No. Well, what is it? You better shut your white mouth. Uh, it's, 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 it's this. It's this pastor. <laughs> it it was sometime this summer, shortly after, like after George Floyd uh, was murdered, right. and um, this white pastor was saying uh, his theory is that black people are really the chosen people, and um, that uh, black people uh, are they're they're deserve equal rights and their equal rights are coming. And he basically told all the white people in his congregation, if you don't believe that, you better shut your white mouth. Uh, And I just love that clip. And this representative needs to just shut his white mouth because this is ridiculous. Although acceptable at the time, which is very sad sad. for America. Yeah. Congressman Kennedy of New York called for detachments of soldiers and sailors to be deployed to patrol Washington streets in order, quote, to protect the poor working girl, unquote. Okay. A police state. (laughs) Yes. Okay. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt used her weekly radio program to caution young women of Washington, offering tips for their safety. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, um, yeah, that is tips for safety. Um, but, uh, yeah, my head is going to places that uh, <laughs> I don't think we have time for. <laughs> the committee the committee hearings focused entirely on the Washington PD's failure to solve the murders of white women and completely ignored the string of unpublicized murders of black women. Yet despite a massive investigation, the murderer remained at large. Cat do <laughs> just kidding. Cato <laughs> had fled to New York. So now we're going to hop on into the investigation and the arrest. What do you have, Beth? At 6 a.m. on August 4th, 1941, Evelyn Anderson, age 26, she was also white, left her home in the Bronx, walking to her job as a waitress at the nearby White Top restaurant. She never arrived. Around 9 p.m., her lifeless body was discovered in an alley off of Jerome Avenue. She'd been strangled to death, marks of fingernails embedded into her throat. But uh, she'd not been raped. Wow. Uh, interesting. Her husband, Earhart, told police that uh, some of the jewelry Evelyn wore, including a wristwatch, was missing. Earhart had recently pawned the watch and then redeemed it shortly afterward. And police were able to recover a description and serial number from the pawnbroker. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 2,000 police circulars with the watch's details were circulated to pawn shops around the city. Police found the watch in a pawn shop in the Bronx just days later, hawked for $20 by a man named Charles Woolfolk. 
Under questioning, Woolfolk said that he received the watch from a woman named Hazel Johnson. Hazel, in turn, said she got the watch from a friend named Mandy Reed. (laughs) And Reed said she got the handbag containing the watch from her friend Jarvis Catdo. I mean, Catto, who told her, I promised you a pocketbook. Oh, you said it again. And I'm sorry I couldn't get you a new one. But here's a nice secondhand one. (laughs) <laughs> By the time Evelyn's watch was being traced, Cato had moved back to Washington, D.C. His landlady in New York complained, quote, he went back to Washington on August 5th without paying the $12 rent he owed me for the month he roomed here. He was shiftless, Ooh. no good, like the women, and was always polishing up his car. You could never oh. get any sense out of him, and when you, he'd take us for a ride, we'd always have to buy gas for his car. <laughs> Wow, it sounds like he's he's not the favorite man on the block. Not uh, not for this not landlady. Well liked, not not well liked in the least bit. Uh, she she must have been like you, Beth, and could see and sniff all, through all the bullshit. All the bullshit. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, Cato was tracked down in Washington D.C. and arrested on August twenty eighth, nineteen forty one, around eight thirty a.m. Cato was polite and cooperative. On questioning, he eventually admitted to giving Hazel the watch, but spun a story about witnessing a murder and robbery of Evelyn by two thugs who gave him her watch and handbag to buy his silence. Likely story. That's a good, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, I don't know if my head would come up with that. No, so no, I wouldn't. I'd be like, uh, <laughs> what happened then was this, the house to the house began to twitch. Like, I don't know. I'll just sing a, a yeah, musical yeah, tune and see that. if they buy they're, it. They're <laughs> interrogating you and you just like burst out into song. I can see that. That's exactly what I would do. You know me too well. You know me too well. <laughs> but Cato's story fell apart under questioning, and he finally admitted to killing Evelyn Anderson. But then he dropped a bombshell and admitted to seven more murders. He also confessed to over a dozen rapes in which the victims survived. Many of the rapes had not even been reported to the police. He also confessed to the failed abductions of two more women. Wow. Busy, busy, busy guy. He uh, confessed to the murders that he could remember, but he reckoned that the real body count was about 10. Most, but not all, of his victims had been sexually assaulted. Cato told police that he suffered from quote-unquote spells in which he would rape and kill after drinking wine and reading detective stories about rape cases and looking at pictures of nude women. Cato claimed, quote, I didn't mean to kill them, but some of them fought so that I had to choke them hard. They just kicked off. End quote. It's not my fault. And I, just, I didn't mean they to made do me, it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> wow. Gaslight much? After detailing several attacks upon black women, Cateau was asked whether he had anything to do with recent attacks on white women. He then confessed to the murder of Betty Strife and finally the murder of Rose Abramowitz. He stated that he had taken a $20 bill from Rose's black leather pocketbook, which was only known at the time by two officers. Later, Cato led officers without assistance to and into the Abramowitz apartment. He then reenacted the crime and described the furniture which had been removed. 
Coteau was taken to the vicinity of various crime scenes and asked to lead the investigators through the murders. He noted correctly that the garage where he left Betty Strife had been painted a new color, and its doors changed since he left the body there. Coteau made a full written confession. Coteau had given Betty Strife's umbrella to a female friend, along with a vanity case said to have been stolen from his New York victim, as well as a hat taken from another victim, and a second umbrella taken from yet another victim. In his girlfriend's apartment, they also found several pairs of women's shoes and articles of female attire that he had presented to her as gifts. A month later, at a sanity examination conducted by two doctors representing the government and two doctors appointed by Coteau's attorney, Coteau denied that he had any connection with or knowledge of this case, except that which he had learned since being arrested. Mm. Right. A week later, a second similar examination, Coteau told the doctors that part of what he had said at the previous examination was untrue. He then explained that he knew the layout of the apartment because an acquaintance of his had gone there, drugged a woman, and that he had taken a camera up so that the acquaintance could take some pictures of the woman in the nude. Mm, another, what a story. Another likely story. Yeah. <laughs> Get this guy a Peabody because his wow. <laughs> he said that he was in the apartment a short time and saw the woman in a fleeting glimpse through a door that was ajar. Coteau said that he did not know whether his acquaintance had killed the woman and did not report the incident because he had been a police informer in the past and believed that innocent men often got themselves into trouble when talking to police. Well, that's true. That is true. But uh, <laughs> that ain't it, Cato. <laughs> uh, so Cato eventually retracted all of his statements saying he'd been sleepy, he'd been hungry and ill, and that the officers threatened him and badgered him into making up stories. Now, this I do believe because... Uh, uh, this this is not unusual for law enforcement to do because they want to close the cases. Right. Uh, when asked why he didn't disclose to a doctor who had examined him or his brother and some of his friends who had visited him that he said it, he said it was because in all cases the police were present. Um, and I also do believe that. Yeah. Now this doesn't negate any any of any the facts of that, that he stuff. did yeah. do all this very <laughs> fucked up shit. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me 
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. So now we're going to get into the trial. Jarvis Coteau went on trial in October 1941 for the murder of Rose Abramowitz. By then, he was claiming that he had been coerced into a confession. But his confessions were not the only evidence used against him. At the trial, Coteau denied all connections with the crimes or the women and stayed or the woman, uh, Rose, and stated that he knew nothing of Abramowitz, the Abramowitz apartment until he was led there to reenact the crime. The jury was out for only 18 minutes before voting for a conviction and the death penalty. Now, uh... I don't know if there were any black people on Probably the jury not. or even women yeah. on the jury. Uh, but uh, Cato ap- appealed, citing invo- involuntary confession. But guess what? He wasn't successful. Although indicted for the murders of Florence Darcy, Josephine Robinson, Lucy Kidwell, Maddie Stewart, Ada Puller, Betty Streif, and Evelyn Anderson, Cato never stood trial for any of them. The murders of Virginia McPherson, Mary Baker, Mary E. Sheeds, Corinna Loring, and Beulah Limerick were never solved. So, uh, rest in power, uh, Queens. Uh, where where are they now? Well, we don't know the fate of James Matthew Smith, the man convicted of the murder of Florence Darcy. Police were positive that he was innocent and that Coteau was the one who killed her. Uh, on the eve of his execution, Coteau was supposed to testify on Smith's behalf, but instead he climbed a 65 feet up onto a railing where he perched for three hours, threatening to jump. <laughs> Not helping James no. in any way. No. Eventually, he did come down and gave his testimony, during which he again recanted his confession, basically condemning Smith to prison. On January 15, 1943, Coteau reportedly walked into the dust chamber singing, and he was executed oh. by electrocution in the District of Columbia. Wow. Walking in singing. That would be mm-hmm. you. Mm. That would be me. That would be me. <laughs> yes, indeed. I don't know which song it would be. But I'm sure uh, you'd figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, any requests in the chamber? <laughs> uh, so now we're going to get into what we believe made uh, Coteau snap and our takeaways. So what do you have, Beth? What are your thoughts? Well, it sounds like his behavior changed a lot after his head injury and that's when he became violent too. And yeah. he claimed that these spell he had these spells after drinking, reading detective stories about rape and looking at pornography. But he killed both Rose Abramowitz and Betty Streif during the day. 
Um, not to say mm. that it would be impossible for him to be day drinking, but in one case he was headed to work and in the other case he was going to his girlfriend's house. So mm. um, less likely. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. But also both women treated him like a servant. Rose was just like, oh, hey, you're a black man. Come and wax my floors. <laughs> right. Yes. And then Betty, <laughs> she demanded. Yes, she demanded. <laughs> and Betty flagged flagged him down thinking that he was driving a taxi and maybe this pissed him off. I imagine mm. he probably had issues with impulsivity and difficulty regulating his uh, emotions, both mm -hmm. of which can be attributed to brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, but he also killed the black women in a more calculated way. It seemed like he, he just came across the white women, but the black yeah. women he sought out and he, yeah. he went to, to look at places for rent and uh, toured the places, made sure nobody else was there before he killed them. So they were more calculated. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if he killed the white lady ladies prior to the black ladies that were murdered. Um, yeah. It's possible, but that would mean that he committed basically three, three different series of murders. Um, Whoa. Yeah. So there was the series of white women, there was the series of black women, and then the series of white women again, which is possible. But yeah. also his crimes were not really that unusual. Uh, they weren't that different from other serial kill killers we have covered. So it's possible there was another serial killer as well. I don't know. Well, it was the murder capital yes, of, the, of the world exactly. or of just uh, the, United the United States. States. I don't know. The United okay. States, I think. Okay, I wonder what the war the murder capital of the world is. Hmm. Hey, have you heard of um like not terror tourism, but to uh, people traveling to places after a natural disaster, oh after an economic downturn, after what do a, they a do terrorist? There? Well, they say it's cheaper oh. to travel there. And uh that it's just uh, I don't know, it's a weird it's a That's fetish, I fucked think. Up. It is, but I am not opposed. <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, if there, what, what's the murder capital of the world, and does Southwest fly and, there? And is it, I don't how know. cheap is it to go there? And how much is a hotel room? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Head injury. Um, but what is interesting uh, uh, when we cover cases like these that are decades old is how differently uh, everything is treated, including traumatic brain injuries right. and mental health um, issues. And uh, back then, you know, uh, they didn't know what to do with him, really. Yeah. But it sounded like the, they were trying, like his brother was really involved in trying to make his relationship work and like keep him on the right track. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> that it just, just didn't, it work. didn't work out. Yeah. Right. And in black families, um, and I'm only speak, say this because this is my experience, when there's somebody who has a problem that the system is not able to, um, there's not outside resources other than the family. And it just it, it just reminded me of, of things I've seen, the brother doing everything he can to try to help um, Kato. Right. Uh, and uh, I don't know what kind of treatment uh, modalities were available to, to him for his brain injury or behavioral health probably not issues, a lot. but probably not very much. Well, I mean, uh, number one, it was way back when. And the 30, yeah. yeah and yeah. number two, he was black. 
black. Right. Um, and uh, so Cato, we're not sure whether his parents were born into slavery or not. But we, I think what we can say for sure is what he was born into after slavery, the systemic racism, Jim Crow and white supremacy. Yeah, it wasn't was that far off from slavery. Ex- exactly. Uh, and all of those things contributed to, I think, his lack of care, um, lack of a good education, perhaps uh, an inability to get a really good job um, that didn't require, you know, the support of his illegal hustles. He was stealing, um, mind you, and, uh, you know, committing frauds. And uh, let's see, the news was racist as back then, as we said, and uh, it's uh, not a surprise, but just upsetting that the lives of the black female victims were um, not uh, covered yeah. at all. Yeah. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. (laughs) So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So these are generic tips kind of related to the story since we're in 2021, not 1941. uh, I did want to just talk about ride sharing and Craigslist and marketplace kind of safety tips, right? All these things that people were doing in the 40s are kind of online now, right? right. Uh, you know, Lyft and Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist. Um, but uh, for, you know, for hiring people to do jobs mm-hmm. or um, obtaining goods and services. So make sure that if you are engaging in any transaction online, it is worth your time. Don't waste it. It is your most valuable commodity. Um, check out the buyer or seller profile if you can, like on Facebook Marketplace. Sometimes you might have a mutual acquaintance. Um, I haven't used Facebook Marketplace in a long time. So if if I'm off, Beth, let me know. But my understanding is you can see if you know the person or if they know people who know you. Yeah, I don't know because um, I, I don't use it. Damn. Okay. Well, <laughs> swing and a miss. <laughs> so just check out the buyer and seller profile if you can. Um, inspect before you pay. Um, it's a good idea to bring a friend or an expert with you. Like if you're going to go buy like a laptop or a video game console, if you know, have a friend who's like, you know, well-versed in this gaming system, like bring them along so they can check it out or, you know, bring batteries in 
case you need to check and see if something works or, um, you know, isn't broken. Um, meet in a public place and again, bring a friend. Uh, you could have the buyer come to your house, like if you have something really big and heavy. Um, it's just practice safety. I mean, uh, we are in a panorama still. So, you know, <laughs> practice that kind of safety and, um, you know, uh, just be sure that you are not alone. Accept cash if you can, but if not, use a secure electronic payment uh, method such as PayPal, which I did not know, but PayPal will investigate fraud claims. Did you know that? I did not. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thanks, PayPal. That's cool. Yeah. 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 I did not know that. So if you get scammed, um, you can contact PayPal. Um, trust your instincts when vetting buyers. Um, trust your instincts when using Lyft or Uber. Um, if you're waiting for a ride, do it in a safe place. That woman who was waiting in the in the rain probably wanted to get out of the rain so bad right. and saw Cato and was like, whew. I don't have to get in the rain anymore. <laughs> Looks a little suspect, but at least I won't be wet. Yeah. And now she's dead. So uh, wait for the ride in a safe place and um, ask the driver, what's my motherfucking name, bitch, before you get in the car? <laughs> because they're supposed to have that information before you get in. And if they don't, then they need to go the other way. <laughs> and uh, you can verify the car and driver on the app, yeah. obviously. But um, one thing that we might forget to do because we're in a hurry getting places is you can share your trip oh, yeah. with your right. friends and make sure the driver knows that. I don't know if you saw this what crazy white man this weekend in Georgia driving a black uh, girl home from college and her mom was in the car with her. This was like a Uber or something? Uber lift. As soon as those black ladies got in the car, this man went on a <gasps> oh. hours long racist rant. Oh my God. And, what the uh, fuck? Yeah. Like what if he was like even like a, like a violent racist? Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, he could have taken that them somewhere and murdered them. Yeah. So anyway, share share the, the trip information and let the driver know so, you know, th they can't fuck with you. Right. Or, you know, are less likely. To. Yeah. So um, let's move on over to the shout out portion of our show. <laughs> shimmy, shimmy to the shout outs uh, where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content about or by any othered marginalized or underrepresented groups. I wanted to shout out one of my favorite comedy kind of true crimey conspiracy podcasts. It's called My Mama Told Me. Okay, <laughs> heard of it? Uh -uh. And it's it's a conspiracy theory podcast, but it's only conspiracy theories that black people <laughs> come up with. <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's really funny. It like sounds uh, funny already. <laughs> it's, it's and it's like things we've heard when you were a kid, like if you don't brush your teeth, ants will crawl in your mouth. Oh gosh, you no. <laughs> because like the ants will smell the sugar right, and like right. be like, Ooh, anyway, sugar. yeah, like fuck, I better brush my teeth. So the host is uh his comedian Langston Kerman and I actually had a conspiracy theory that I wanted to know about so I messaged him and he did a whole ass episode oh, about wow, it and that's I was so, so awesome I know I was so excited so my conspiracy was that um hurricanes uh, are actually the souls of black people lost during the middle passage during slavery <laughs> coming to wreak havoc on America <laughs> for its original sin slavery I don't have any reason to believe that that was not true and uh, <laughs> Langston did all 
of the research. <laughs> and anyway, it's hilarious. Um, and it's if you're into history and kind of awesome. conspiracy yeah. theories, I'm, it's really, really I'm fun. I'm subscribing right yeah. now. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? Uh, I just wanted to shout out the the podcast uh, Snap Judgment, which I've shouted out before. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. But they did an episode this week and it was a... Uh, spotlighting ear hustle oh yes yes which we've also shouted out before you're right yeah so uh the episode is called hot trash (laughs) (laughs) and i learned during the episode that hot trash is garbage that is also contraband Ooh! yeah look at us learning Learning stuff listen (laughs) learning the prison lingo Prison lingo, pocketbooks, uh, <laughs> all the pronounced Des Moines. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Well, I feel smarter. Those shout outs one more time are My Mama Told Me podcast and uh, Snap Judgment. And this particular episode where they uh, highlight or spotlight ear hustle, uh, Hot Trash is the name of the episode. Um, well, this has been fantastic. Yeah. But uh, we have to go. And uh, when we do, where can the people find us Beth. our website is fruitloopspod.com our facebook page is fruit loops pod and our discussion group is fruit loops pod discussion on facebook we are also on twitter and instagram at fruit loops pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app and we got a big ass donation this week which uh was really Woo! cool yeah i know yeah. so excited look out for your tunes <laughs> or you can become a monthly patron through podbean this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website That's all correct. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. 
we navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now.